Hello friends, welcome back to Hermeneutica Etc., where we talk about theology, philosophy, interpretations, and so forth. I'm your host, Jonathan Dansby, and this week's, and this episode, not this week's episode, but this episode that you're listening to now, uh, is a sermon that I had delivered last July uh, at the church uh, me and my family have been attending for a few years now. Um so uh that was i mean eight months ago uh yeah about eight months ago um so it's been a long time coming um again part of the whole uh long hiatus from the last time i published anything on the podcast or on the blog for that matter uh but this podcast is the sermon anyway is also uh, uh a blog so you can find that on the website at hermeneuticaetc.wordpress.com. I think that does it for introductions. Uh, Stay tuned for a series of um, class sessions that we'll be having on the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, uh, also at the church we've been attending. Um, I'm facilitating that study and uh, have gotten permission to record uh, the sessions for people to use as a kind of conversation partner um, for those who go through are going through the class right now and for those who might come by later and uh, don't exactly want to read uh, the book by themselves uh, but are wanting to engage some way in uh, a conversation um, I'm hoping these podcasts will do that so looking forward to that um, uh, coming up pretty soon. I think the first one I'm going to put down today, uh, I think I'm going to drop three episodes today, actually. Um, everything is looking that way anyway. Uh, thanks again for listening. I appreciate you taking the interest and the time. I'm trying to keep some of these regular episodes pretty short. The class sessions will be a little longer, uh, but some of these um, uh, blog posts that I record uh, the audio too will continue to be pretty short. So, uh, again, I thank you for your time. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast or any of the other, uh, episodes in the podcast, uh, like, share, uh, subscribe, share with your friends, um, all that stuff. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time and the interest. Uh, so without further ado, my sermon entitled off with his head. Introduction. Context means everything. Some of you have probably heard the old real estate adage, location, location, location. Well, I want to adapt it for my own purposes this morning in order to communicate the significance of today's odd gospel text. Context, context, context. A different but equally important adage I heard in my preaching classes was, a text without a context is a pretext. Context, in other words, means everything. And today's gospel text only means anything in context. So where are we in Mark's story? In a word, we're still in the middle of Jesus' ministry of power. 
Jesus has been proclaiming the reign of God come near in both word and deed through parables and healing the possessed. And his ministry of power will continue through the miraculous feedings and healings of Jewish and Gentile crowds. But the picture of Jesus' ministry and his identity as Messiah is nuanced, adjusted, and reframed by this story of John's death. Bracketing either side of the feedings are nearly identical inquiries into the identity of Jesus and the people's typical failure to correctly perceive the significance of Jesus' ministry, as in chapters 6 and 8. Jesus has just sent his disciples on mission as an extension of his own ministry of power in word and deed. Thus, the disciples' mission provides the occasion for the first of that pair of inquiries into Jesus' identity. Word is getting around that Jesus' disciples are saying and doing some amazing, miraculous things, and people are starting to wonder who this Jesus could be. Some say Jesus is Elijah, whose return was expected to herald the inbreaking reign of God. Others say he is one of the other prophets of old, like Jeremiah, Amos, or Ezekiel. Still others, and Herod among them, think he is John the baptizer, raised from the dead. How Mark tells the story. Mark and sandwiches, and narrative flashback. Then suddenly the storyline breaks off, taking the mention of John being dead as an occasion to elaborate how John died. But the overarching story would make complete sense without this elaborating narrative. It works perfectly. The disciples are sent on a mission of word and deed by Jesus. The people marvel and wonder about who this Jesus is. And the disciples return to give an account to Jesus on the success of their mission. It's a seamless story. But between the sending and the return of the disciples, Mark sandwiches this long, melodramatic flashback of the circumstances surrounding John's death. But even the flashback could have just taken one or two sentences to tell us that John had been executed and then resumed with the disciples' return from mission. But Mark doesn't do that. He puts on the brakes, slows the whole story to a grinding halt. In fact, he takes us back in time to draw out in dark detail the court intrigue that leads slowly but surely to the gruesome death of John. But why tell the story this way? An attentive reader or readers will remember that John was imprisoned just before Jesus' own ministry began. See chapter 1, verse 14, for example. So that it could be told to tie up Uh, that open plot thread. In biblical narrative, however, flashbacks aren't merely for tying up loose plot threads, as important as that is. They also serve another important purpose, to communicate simultaneity. This flashback serves the narrative purpose of telling the audience that the mission of the disciples at the behest of Jesus happens at the same time as the beheading of John. These stories are intertwined, deeply connected. But why? 
how Mark is telling the story is just as important as what he tells in the story. From the very beginning, Mark has been careful to place stories about John in parallel to Jesus. The overriding story of Jesus' ministry of power rides the momentum of John's own powerful ministry. So this longish story of John's gruesome execution must also be in parallel with some aspect of Jesus' ministry. In life, John prepares the way for Jesus' ministry of power. So too, in death, John prepares the way for Jesus' ministry of suffering. A primary purpose, then, of this flashback focused on John is to foreshadow Jesus' passion, execution, entombment, and actual resurrection. Prophets and Powers Another important parallel aspect of the foreshadowing to draw out is the connection between the dark and chaotic powers from previous chapters, the demons, sicknesses, and storms, and the political and religious powers as they grow in opposition to Jesus and his ministry of the kingdom. The powers of darkness morph and manifest in various ways in Mark's story and are here embodied in the person and position of King Herod and Herodias, just as they will be embodied in the scribes and Pharisees and in Pilate. So this should remind us, readers, of the conflict between Elijah and King Ahab and Jezebel in 1 Kings 17, but also of Amos with King Jeroboam and the priest Amaziah in Amos 7. Amos was sent to divine author- sent by divine authority to speak against the covenant crookedness and infidelity of the northern kingdom of Israel. The priest Amaziah rejects Amos's message on principle. He doesn't think Amos is legit. He thinks Amos is in it for the money. Go back home and earn your bread, he says. But Amos has news for Amaziah and anyone else who rejects the prophets of God. Rejection of the prophet is tantamount to rejection of God. It is not the prophet who is the rebel, but Amaziah, and Amaziah is rejecting the true king. Like Herod, we can't always anticipate the consequences of our actions, and perhaps more to the point, we can't always perceive the webs of consequence that we're already a part of. But, and in contrast to Amaziah, we can refrain from adding insult to injury. We can begin by the grace of God to take mental and spiritual stock of our actions and inactions, of our additions and omissions to the word of God. This is one of the major reasons the confession of sins is included in the liturgy. The public confession of what we have done and what we have left undone is intended to root out pride and idolatry and to add a hedge of humility around our hearts. The grace of confession is that it reorients our hearts and desires from opposition to Jesus toward loving submission. And because of Christ's call to repentance and offer of forgiveness, we can pursue a life of faithfulness to the true king and not the idolatrous kings of our own making. Discipleship under the shadow of the cross. 
I want to wrap things up by returning to reflect more explicitly on what John's death tells us about discipleship. This is part of the reason context is so important. The death of the prophet who prepared the way of the Lord is sandwiched between the disciples sent on mission by the Lord. The, rege- the major focus of the sending and return of the disciples is their dependency on the grace of God to provide for their needs by the means of God's people. In other words, the grace of God's providential care is the precondition for the success of the disciples' mission to proclaim repentance, forgiveness, and the coming kingdom. The kind of trust required of the disciples on this mission is the same trust needed to pass through death. This is implied, I think, in the juxtaposition of John's execution with the disciples' mission. By inserting this story of John's execution, the disciples and us readers are intended to remember that Jesus' ministry of power has to be seen in the context of Jesus' ministry of suffering. For it is the cross, and not the miracles alone, that ultimately and most clearly reveals the true identity of Jesus Messiah. So not only does John's death point to Jesus' suffering and death as the Messianic King, but also to the path Jesus' disciples will walk in taking up the cross to follow him. The significance of Jesus' ministry and his identity as Messiah is nuanced, reoriented, and reframed by this foreshadowing story of John's death for his opposition against the immorality of the powers that be. So also Jesus' call to disciples to share in his ministry of word and deed is nuanced, reoriented, and reframed by the disciples' second calling in chapter 8 to take up their cross and follow the crucified Messiah. In the end, this story about John is not really about John. It's about Jesus. Just as John the baptizer in John's gospel points to Jesus and proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here in Mark's gospel, John the baptizer's death points to Jesus and proclaims to those who have ears to hear, Behold, the Lord of life who goes with you on the way to the cross. Well, that's it. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that uh, sermon slash podcast episode. Uh, If you did, like, subscribe, share, um, shout it from the rooftops, etc. I really appreciate it. Um, Said everything I really needed to say in the intro, so I'll just leave it with a traditional farewell. Uh, Thanks again for listening to Hermeneutica, etc. I'm your host, Jonathan Dansby, and I'll see you next time.